1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cast
0: today is a very fortuitous day for a few different reasons, because this episode is airing on a very important centennial. Would you like to take a guess as to just what that is?
1: Well, if it's a centennial, that would mean that this event occurred exactly 100 years ago today. So that would be June 4th, 1919. And given our subject today, I want to say that this is about the right to vote. But I do know for a fact, April, that American women did not gain the right to vote, federally speaking, until the summer of 1920. So a full year later you would actually
0: be correct on both fronts. Um, American women were officially able to vote beginning in August, or specifically August 8th in 1920, but this is when the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, not when it was passed in the Senate, which makes June 4th, 1919, the day a bunch of old white dudes finally admitted that it was time to allow women the right
1: to enfranchisement. But alas, the battle was not quite over. Before the constitutional amendment could be official, it needed to be ratified by two-thirds of the majority of the states. So some 15 states had actually already given women various versions of voting rights prior to the passing of the amendment in the Senate, but a total of 36 states were required to ratify the amendment to move it forward on the federal level. By March of
0: 1920, 35 of 36 necessary states had ratified the amendment, meaning just one more was needed. And it all came down to Tennessee. So while many of its Southern neighbors had already voted down the amendment, Tennessee now turned into a hotbed of suffrage and anti-suffrage campaigning because everything cast was on the line, basically. And people were literally wearing their politics on their sleeve. Well, maybe not exactly on their sleeve, but those in favor of suffrage were adopting yellow roses on their clothing, and those who were against wore red roses.
1: And based on the color of the roses worn by the legislators entering the room on the day of the vote— Things were not looking great for votes for women because two years previous, Harry Burns, aged 22 or 23 at the time, had been voted into office as Tennessee's youngest member of the state legislature. That morning, April, he donned his red rose as a symbol of his position and went off to cast his vote. However, at some
0: point before the vote, he received a very passionate letter from his mother, Phoebe S. Minger-Byrne, urging her son to, quote, be a good boy, And to vote for ratification. (laughs) Um, You know, and suddenly reversing his vote for the amendment with no previous indication, his colleagues were basically stunned and cast some accounts even say that he had to like sneak off the legislature floor to avoid like all the ire and anger of his colleagues. But the next day he did eventually come back and address the legislature and explained that he felt that a young man should always do best to follow his mother's <laughs>
1: advice. So true.
0: And, and I had no idea about this part of the story until I started working on this episode, and I find
1: it so charming. I know. I had actually never heard of it either, and I think it's wonderful. I mean, as the saying goes, behind every great man is an even greater woman. That's right. Um, and there's even more
0: to this story, or more leading up to this part of the story, I should say. And we are pleased to have fashion historian Risa Britannia here to join us to discuss the role fashion and dress played in the American suffragist movement.
1: Because there is oh so much more to tell. Welcome, Risa. Welcome, Risa. Hi, April. Thank
2: you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show, so I'm really excited to be here today.
0: Yeah, and I'm super excited about this topic, for sure, especially since you pointed out, actually, that today, today, this very day that this episode drops is the 100th anniversary of it passing. Um, And Cass and I have spoken about the early origins of the women's rights movement, in the U.S. on another podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You, and we dropped this episode into our feed as well. But I think we could really benefit from an overview of kind of the last half of the 19th century in terms of this movement in the U.S. So, Raisa, who were some of the important players and what were some of the key events that happened?
2: So it's widely acknowledged that the beginning of the women's suffrage movement was 1848 in Seneca Falls, and that was the first women's rights convention led by Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But there were many markers uh, throughout the 19th century that eventually led to kind of the final push of the suffrage movement, which happened in the 20th century, and some of those were in 1867, when Kansas became the first state to hold a referendum for women's suffrage. And that, unfortunately, did not pass. But in 1869, the territory of Wyoming granted women the right to vote. And later, when Wyoming joined the union in 1890, they had to do another referendum to make sure that they retained that right.
0: So I think that um, this term suffrage will be familiar to most of our listeners, but just in case it's not, um, can you tell us what does suffrage mean and also provide a little more nuance between the terms suffragette and suffragist?
2: Sure. So suffrage means the right to vote. And the term women's suffrage is kind of the all-encompassing term for the movement that began in 1848 and really came up until 1920 with the ratification of the 19th amendment but suffragette is kind of the term that we hear the most often kind of used colloquially but it was actually a derogatory term that was used to mock british suffragists who
0: were famously militant <laughs> and nasty women. So nasty.
2: <laughs> and the more radical were uh, sometimes incited to violence. But this term was ultimately in, reclaimed by British women, much like the term nasty woman. But it was considered derogatory in America mm-hmm. during the time. So American suffrage leaders really preferred the term suffragist to suffragette.
0: Cool. So, so when we're talking about suffrage, um, as you mentioned, we're talking about the rights to vote. But that's not the only thing that these women's rights activists were asking for during the 19th century. What were some of their other complaints, demands, desires? Ah, well, they were very carefully laid out
2: in the declaration of sentiments which was written in 1848 for the women's rights convention and it really brought attention to the fact that women were second class citizens that and they did not have a legal identity that was separate from their husband so they couldn't vote they had no representation in government there was a lack of property rights in marriage and an inequality in divorce law so women often didn't win custody of their kids if they were to get a divorce, which was more uncommon at the time, but also inequality in education and employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot to fight for. Yeah,
0: and I even um, read in some states that if a woman worked legally, she was not technically um, entitled to her own wages, which oh, is for the love <laughs> <laughs> shocking. Um, and and if we've learned anything on dressed, it's really that. Dress is and clothing is one of the main ways that an individual constructs their identity, not only for themselves, um, but also as an outward expression to the external world. So can you fill us in very briefly and briefly, because this is a complex topic, about Mm -hmm. bloomer costume and its relationship to the early years of the women's rights movement? Because I think what this does is it really kind of sets us up quite nicely to speak how dress continues on in as a form of political activism in its own right
2: yeah so as you discussed in the other podcast this was a costume that was adopted by early women's rights advocates like elizabeth caddy stanton and amelia bloomer for whom the costume was named and it really took off at this time kind of in tandem with the women's suffrage movement because they both came to be around 1848, 1851. But uh, it's interesting to note that neither of those two efforts really coalesced until the early 20th century. So they really did go hand in hand. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you describe the costume to us
2: just very briefly? Sure. So um, it really did not deviate far from 1850s fashionable dress with the tight-laced bodice, narrow waist, wide, wide skirt. The only real difference was that the skirt was shortened by about a foot. And at the bottom, you saw the peak of two little legs <laughs> in um, pantaloons or bloomers. These were very full and kind of looked like um, harem pants.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can go into this um, style of dress a little bit further in that older episode, if you want to go back and, and listen to that. Check it out. Yeah, that's right. Um, because we're going to march forward and talk about where fashion takes us in terms of the suffrage movement. And Raisa, World War I kind of seems to be a bit of a tipping point within this movement. Um, you know, as, as, as you point out in your work on this topic, popular opinion was really kind of oftentimes played out in print culture yes. of the era. Can you tell us a little bit more about like how this movement was portrayed in print and in the media? Yes. So the entire movement
2: was a practice in image making, whether that be in performance through these suffrage demonstrations, parades, pageants, but also in the way that it was represented in uh, visual culture. And I think the most interesting and prevalent type was in the suffrage postcard. And the thing is, the final thrust of the women's suffrage movement in the United States actually dovetails with what we call the golden age of the postcard. And that's determined by scholars to be around 1902 to Mm 1915-ish. And this is when the postcard um, reached its zenith in circulation. In America. So if you think about these things, they're these little pieces of paper, they're inexpensive, they're easily circulated, and they're these transient missives with really impactful imagery. It's pretty much the equivalent of sharing a meme. Right. Today. Right. So these official postcards, some were produced by official organizations, which were generally pro-suffrage, and commercial postcards, which were generally anti-suffrage. Mm-hmm. And there's this conflation of the two to create kind of what we understand as the American suffragists today.
0: Yeah. Do you have any particular ones that you're big fans of? Well,
2: so I actually, there are archetypes, mm-hmm. and um, I love and hate them all. Um, so there are several archetypes that commonly appear in suffrage postcards, and they are all largely identifiable through the dress that they're depicted wearing. and. Each archetype has a special interaction with fashion. So uh, the two archetypes that show up in pro-suffrage imagery are the virtuous mother. Mm -hmm. And she's usually, you know, very demure, very understated. Mm -hmm. And also the timeless allegory. So we see the woman in the classical garb of, you know, ancient times. And it's funny because both of these archetypes exist outside of fashion in a way those stereotypes that are used uh, by anti-suffragists are really tied to the consumption of fashion because there is the dowdy shrew, Uh which we've all seen, and she is very unfashionable. Mm -hmm. And her foil is the frivolous fashionista Mm -hmm. who is hyper-fashionable and too obsessed with fashion. But then, aside from those two, there's also the very masculine woman mm-hmm. who is seen as the subversion of fashion, the anti-radical person. So she is equally dangerous. And these five archetypes, there are several more, but they, they really set the tone for how people perceived These women.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You (laughs) and your work on this um, show an image of one postcard that I especially love. Mm -hmm. Um, It's from 1906, and it's an anti-suffrage postcard entitled a woman's mind magnified. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> and basically, I'm just going to describe it here because it's the outline of a feminine face. You can obviously see that it's a woman and her her face is tilted forward so you can kind of see inside her brain. And inside her brain is a series of illustrations one of which is of a very, very, very large hat. Um, You see some handwritten letters. You see a couple of handsome men peering from behind a wedding band, a very fashionable dress that was styled with an S-Bend corset that was um, of the style, the silhouette of the day, a crying baby, a puppy, and a box of chocolates. And that's all she's got in her brain. And that's all she has room for. She couldn't possibly (laughs)
2: have room for the desire to vote.
0: (laughs) Um um but on the pro side I want to mention another one too um and that's another 1909 one and it's a woman peering over a fence um labeled women's sphere and then there's a doll labeled fashion lying on the ground and a toy top labeled gossip lying on the ground behind her so those are just two kind of opposite sides from around the same time period they only hmm. they're only about 3 years apart do you have any other one, notable ones that you'd like to mention? Yes.
2: So there was actually um, what was called the Suffragette Series by the Dunstan-Weiler Company. And it's a, these sets, these postcard sets, it kind of was a collect-them-all mm-hmm. situation. And they all show women in these absurdly large hats, basically performing the tasks of what was considered masculine, but doing so in a hyper-feminine way. Mm -hmm. And I'd say this set was uh, the most circulated of the suffrage postcards. And you should check them out because they're hilarious, but they're also pretty beautiful.
0: Yeah, and we will definitely post lots of really lovely photos of these on our Instagram feed. So... The time period that we're talking about right now is just before World War I, um, the 1910s. And this is, of course, the same time period when we start to see a widespread rejection of the corset. So, Raisa, how did the suffragists of this period view the corset and and high fashion in general?
2: So, as you've discussed on the podcast before, there really was this, this moment that dress started to become modern, and just as the bloomer costume was polarizing in the mid nineteenth century, so was this new style. Mm-hmm. And so there were kind of two schools of thought. That the people who were for it kind of saw this liber- for fashion. You mean yes for yeah. f- for fashion for dress reform. Mm-hmm. Who They saw this freeing of the body as equivalent to freedom of movement, which would lead to the freedom of the mind, Mm -hmm. which, understandable, if you're comfortable, you can do other things like vote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there were also women who were against the new fashion, and they saw this freeing of the body as kind of dubious to morality. Mm -hmm. And... I actually have a really great quote here from Women's Wear Daily um, in 1915, and it is from a woman who was a suffrage leader in New Orleans who was not about the new styles. And she said, quote, nudity is less immodest than the most latest creations. (laughs) The mental complex of woman is such that a jaunty hat and a devil-may-care skirt transform a healthy-minded girl into a would-be Camille. Wow. Yes. <laughs> the power of fashion. So fashion could be very, very bad for American morals. That's
0: right. That's right. Um, I'd like to talk. Um, take a moment and talk about some of the most fashionable suffragists. Some of them were socialites mm-hmm. and they kind of threw their celebrity behind the movement um, in all their fashionable glory. Who are some of your favorites? Well, I couldn't talk about
2: socialite suffragists, without mentioning Alva Belmont. Of course. Who was perhaps the most well-known and crucial player in the movement. She was formerly married to William Vanderbilt and later went on to marry Oliver Belmont. But after her second husband died, she really threw all of her support into the suffrage movement. And she held rallies Mm -hmm. at her estate in Newport, Rhode Island, Marble House, in 1909 and 1914. And that is where all the fashionable ladies came to play. So fashionable ladies such as Catherine Dewar McKay, who was the founder of the Equal Franchise Society, and a very well-dressed lady. And she actually knew that the society pages avidly covered her clothes. So she would wear outrageous things, to these suffrage meetings. And it was understood that when they came, they could talk about her clothes, but they also had to take a statement about the vote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and that's a tactic, actually, too, that I think that was part of the reason... F- For uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the other women who were adopting the bloomer costume, too, they were kind of using that same tactic as well. The controversy over the dress um, in order to kind of, like, spread their message and their stance. Um, One of the things I think that's really interesting about Alva um, is she, some of you may already know, is the mother of Consuelo Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. who was also um, quite the celebrated it girl of the day. Um, And so on one side, you have Alva as one of these big leaders of the suffragist movement. But at the same time, let's not forget that she once imprisoned and forced her teenage daughter to wed the Dirk of Marlborough for the title of a duchess um, in exchange of them giving him $75 million in Vanderbilt Railroad stock. Oh dear. So, So, you know... it. it it's just kind of interesting to see, like, how some things are shifting, but yet other things aren't. Well, definitely not. <laughs> so, there's there's a very specific moment amongst the suffrage movement of the early 20th century when the power of clothing was crystallized, as you're talking about, in terms of fashion. You know, fashion, as you have already mentioned, Riso, was a bit of a double-edged sword. So... How did women solve this issue of publicly presenting themselves to be part of the cause?
2: Well, it's really interesting because as soon as a woman entered the cause, she was no longer just an individual. She was an embodiment of the entire movement. And that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. So there was this effort to rebrand at the turn of the 20th century because previously it was thought that suffragists were kind of these older dowdy women angry women so angry and so dumpy so there was the effort to dress themselves in a way that was becoming so that they you know wouldn't be appear to be deviant or radical but as part of polite society yes part of polite society but as you said double-edged sword It couldn't appear that they were too consumed with fashion because then they would be at the risk of being taken as insincere or frivolous. Mm -hmm. So there's this quote from Harper's Bazaar in an article entitled Dress and the Serious Minded (laughs) from 1907. And it says, quote, the pioneer women suffragists could not convince anybody, male or female, as long as they wore short hair and bloomers. Now, the up to date suffragette wears real lace and does her hair becomingly, and her influence is so much the greater for every good hat she buys.
0: Oh, the hat. The it's hat always the hat. Yeah, and, and, and the hat! the hats really do at some point kind of become a symbol of the movement, they were fashionable, but also, um, you know, kind of iconic when we think of that moment and those women, Mm -hmm. we think first of the hats. So can you tell us maybe a little bit more about that, but also some of the other types of symbolism in suffrage fashions or, or suffrage dress?
2: Yes. So as you said, the hat kind of became a shorthand for the suffragist. And you do see this a lot in postcards with like, little uh like figures of children or animals wearing these hats as <laughs> like, look at these cute suffragists. But uh, as far as the larger uh, picture of suffrage dress, we really think of suffrage dress as that scene while on parade, mm-hmm. because that was the most performative. It was widely covered in the media, very photographed. And these are the images that, sear, that are seared into our brain when Mm -hmm. we think of the movement.
0: And when you say parade, you mean like a protest parade, basically. Yes, a march.
2: Yes, a march. And so these are street parades that, you know, traditionally had very military masculine overtones. And as a result, a lot of the ensembles we see on the women kind of are Mm uniform-esque. So we see a lot of tailored white
0: suits so if if these marches had some kind of, like, um, in, in, the, in the mind of the popular consciousness, some sort of linkage with military parades, mm-hmm. in certain ways, some, the way that w- these women were dressing themselves was almost like a suffrage uniform. It totally was a uniform.
2: And they're actually, they were very conscious in creating this illusion of uniformity. So they did say that, you know, a white or light-colored dress was desirable. And if you did not have that, then it was a neat, dark, tailored suit. So there really was a limited scope of what you saw Mm -hmm. on Parade. Of course, it's worth noting that many working class women didn't have the leisure to purchase a special outfit for the occasion, but they were able to purchase some of the accessories. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the suffrage movement had some sweet merch. (laughs) (laughs) They, Let's bring it back. Yeah. I think we might have to. So they really took advantage of uh, the consumer culture at the time, and they sold everything in the purple, white, yellow color scheme, which were the colors of the National Women's Party. So many people are familiar with the purple, white, green color scheme, which uh, was that of the British movement. But in America, we replaced the green With yellow, um, linking back to that original referendum held in Kansas, Mm -hmm. where the state flower was
0: the The sunflower. sunflower. Yes. And
2: so the color yellow was very prevalent in the movement. It was bright. It was eye-catching. And that color, too, became shorthand for the movement.
0: Nice. Um, What other types of things um, besides color would kind of become symbolic? Because I think automatically of like those iconic sashes that they were Mm -hmm. wearing, there were all types of different accessories that that they were incorporating. Yeah. So there were uh, sashes
2: in the purple, white, yellow color scheme, but there were also ribbons and cockades, but also things like cosmetics and fans oh. and sewing kits <laughs> and other, you know, feminine effects. And these were usually available at department stores.
0: That's amazing. I wonder who was making the money off of this. I bet it was men. I totally <laughs> um So one of the things that struck me when I was preparing to talk to you um, is that there was this kind of this corollary, really, quite literally, um, between these parades or women's rights marches that were held between, you know, 1912, 1920, and fast forward more than 100 years to the 2017 Women's March on Washington, which, which basically had a direct corollary in 1913, and, and dress was of great dialogue to both of these. Um, what was your reaction to this when you started diving into this research, realizing that, that we're once again in this same space? So there were a lot of
2: parallels between the big procession that happened in 1913 in Washington and the Women's March that happened in 2017, in that they both took place in the same location. They both took place on the weekend of a presidential inauguration. So there were obvious parallels there. But as far as dress is concerned, I thought what was most interesting was this idea of the official suffrage or the official parade
0: hat. Yep. It comes right back to the hats. Always with the hats. And
2: I think this instinct towards uniformity is, you know, to project unity, to project this idea that you're part of a larger movement. But also, if you think of pictures of a parade, you mostly see heads. And so to, it's a literal head count. hmm To be counted amongst people, you have to be wearing this hat. And so what I found most interesting was this correlation between both parades in terms of an official hat. Mm -hmm. So in 1913 and the subsequent parades in the early 20th century, there was the official suffrage hat that was sold at places like Macy's, Lord & Taylor, and other department stores. And we see advertisements for it. And it is white- uh, kind of with a short crown and a very wide brim mm-hmm. and then having the the colorful ribbons uh, around as a hat band. And of course, at the 2017 March, uh, we have the pussy hat. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's so interesting that there is this instinct towards creating uniformity in a way that's highly visible, mm-hmm. highly photographable,
0: Absolutely. And and I don't think um, – it, one interesting thing is I can't think of any kind of like major retail outlets that were making the pussy hats. But instead, people were selling them on eBay. And you know those were largely women knitters doing yeah, that. Yeah, and I so,
2: think it's so interesting that the hat of 2017 is homespun. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of that consumer culture that prevailed for the previous parade.
1: Yeah.
0: So, Raisa, um, more than a few of these prints from this period that we've been discussing, these postcards, depict pro-suffrage women as kind of these man-hating radicals archetype. And something about this that's, that's shocking to me today is that this sentiment is still... Still alive and well. Um, And I read a 2018 poll conducted by CBS News that revealed that only 38% of American women consider themselves feminist. But this percentage is greater in the millennial generation. Um, You know, the ages 18 to 35, um, about 46% identify as feminist. And really what gets me as is that this remaining approximately 50% of millennials overwhelmingly report to strongly believe in gender equality and equal rights between race, sex, and religion, but they don't want to be called feminists Mm. because apparently this term feminist remains besmirched by history in the minds of many, many, many people. And I think that part of the problem here is that a lot of women just don't know what this term mm-hmm. actually means, uh, it basically just means that you believe that you have the same basic rights as a man. So, right. So, you're a millennial. I am, and I'm Gen X, just for the record. Um, but what has been your experience with your peers in in terms of how they think about gender equality and this word feminism? Well,
2: first of all, I totally share your shock that more millennials aren't willing to use that term. But I have to say that in my immediate peer group, I find that people are really eager to be identified as a feminist, especially in New York, where again, with the merch, (laughs) um, you see everyone walking around with tote bags and Uh t-shirts really like proclaiming their status as feminist. But If I look beyond my little liberal bubble, um, I can imagine that the hesitation to adopt the label of feminist is similar to the hesitation women felt 100 years ago to adopt the label of suffragist Mm -hmm. or suffragette. And yes, the stereotype of the man-hating radical has just been so codified Mm -hmm. by print culture that we're still feeling it today. But I would like to point out that women today who choose to not identify as feminists for whatever reason um, enjoy liberties that were given to them by women from previous generations who did call themselves feminists. right? And also that they may enjoy liberties that aren't accessible to all women. So I think specifically, this is why intersectional feminism is so important. And thank God that that's getting more attention now. Yeah, absolutely.
0: One thing that we haven't touched on yet here is the matter of race within Mm -hmm. the suffrage movement at large because this was a very, very real point of controversy within the movement in a a lot of different aspects, speaking of intersectionalism. Um, But how did the matter of race play out in women's battle for the right to vote?
2: Yes. So this is the most contentious contention of them all. So in that effort to project uniformity, as we discussed previously, it's important to note that that uniformity was amongst white women. Right. And that um, kind of desire to blur lines only happened between class and not between races. Right. So Black women were often made to march together at the back of the parade procession or else made to hold their own demonstrations altogether. But Ida B. Wells, um, founder of the NAACP and a prominent Chicago-based suffragist, actually defied convention and marched alongside the Illinois contingent in the parade in 1913, and I think everyone was okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Everyone made it through. Yeah.
2: (laughs) But, um yeah, the relationship between Black and white suffragists remained especially fraught because many women chose to put race above gender and actively excluded African-American and other minority women from the cause. But, actually, it was the mobilization of immigrant communities in New York's tenements that made the difference mm-hmm. um, between the unsuccessful 1915 referendum and the successful 1917 referendum. So... There was a strong presence of minority women involved in the cause. It just wasn't as well documented. Mm -hmm. And 100 years later, we are finally beginning to shine a light on these hidden narratives about these lesser known women in the cause. But just to draw attention to the scholarship side of things, I want to say that as a woman of color, it's really important to me to be able to engage with this history on a level that isn't determined by my ethnicity. Because I'm a fashion historian and I study the women's suffrage movement from the perspective of dress history. And while race occasionally plays uh, into my line of inquiry, it's not my main focus. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thankful and hopeful about living in a time where we can not only diversify the narrative, but also diversify the storytellers. Yeah.
0: And that's something that that Cassidy and I have have been thinking about a lot um, as we're kind of digging into some of these stories is like, There's all these personal narratives Mm -hmm. that that don't exist in fashion history yet. Fashion history still kind of remains like this bastion of whiteness. Mm -hmm. This Eurocentricism. Yeah, absolutely. So we do try to pull those out. And if any of you listeners out there have some real-life stories about perhaps your great-grandmother or relatives um, of yours that were women of color that participated in this movement, we would love, love, love to hear from you. Yes.
2: Yes. So actually, many immigrant women came from countries where rem- women already had the right to vote. And so we actually saw a lot of national costume That's on amazing. parade, which is awesome. And we don't see enough of those images. But I have to tell you about my personal experience with parade costumes. Oh, yes. Oh, this yes. Is good. So the 2017 March on Washington, I definitely wore my little suffragist costume. I wore a little white suit, and I wore my sash, and I had my sign from 1917. And I was doing that in homage to the women who marched before me. Yeah, of course. Which was a tradition because actually in the 1913-15 marches, women actually dressed in bloomers to honor those women who came before them. I love this. Which is awesome. But I digress. So I there I was in Washington in my little suffragist uniform, and a very well-meaning lady came up to me and asked to take a picture. And I said, absolutely. And um, I should note that uh, she was a well-meaning white lady who approached me and said that I looked just like her grandmother. Her grandmother was a suffragist. I looked just like her, except for my eyes. Wow. Yeah. And I was speechless. I didn't know what to say, but I actually, on the bus back to New York, I cried because I felt like I was made to feel as if this was a history that I was not allowed to participate in. Right. And perhaps that's because we don't have these narratives of women of color. But also, I feel like this history should be one that is engaged with by all people yeah
0: absolutely so that's all first of all are women Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're not putting our race
2: above our gender today
0: (laughs) no absolutely oh wow can you believe i can't (laughs) oh that's crazy i know (laughs) wow all right let's move on from that very real 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 moment let's fast forward into today a little bit, mm-hmm. um, because I don't know if this is common knowledge um, amongst a lot of like people of my generation, people of your generation. But in 1972, um, Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution um, and, and exactly like the 19th Amendment, which gave the women the right to vote, it needed to be ratified by each individual state. There needed to be a three-fourth majority, which, which at that time and currently still means 38 states. So Congress gave the states, after this 1972 Equal Rights Amendment um, was passed by Congress, it gave the states a 10-year deadline to vote on the matter, to ratify it, up until 1982. And at that time, it fell short. Um, only 35 states ah. <laughs> passed it. Um, Risa, do you want to comment um on this? Like tell us a little bit where we stand at the moment or l- let's talk about this. Like, where are we with this issue again today? Because it's 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 like a hundred years ago happening all over again.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's also important to first note that the Equal Rights Amendment came straight out of the suffrage movement. Because Alice Paul's National Woman's Party really campaigned for that national suffrage amendment. And as soon as that was passed in 1923, 1923
0: is the first time they presented the Equal Rights Amendment to Congress. Which basically saying the 19th Amendment says that we have, the, as women, have the right to vote. But there is nothing in the Constitution um, m- making it specifically clear mm-hmm. that male and female um, have the same rights yeah so you know this is shocking to us now um, I think that this has been lingering right mm-hmm. in legislation for um, nearly a hundred years now um, and and it's increasingly becoming a point of discussion given the current political climate in the United States um, and as my understanding right now is that um, even though in 1982 only 35 states had ratified this amendment, Since then, two more have. So 37 of the 38 required states um, have ratified this. We need just one more. One more. (laughs) Come on. You know, so it's an increasing point of discussion that I'm seeing people talking about in the media.
2: Yes. So this has actually popped up in... Pop culture. I immediately think of um, an episode of The West Wing, season two, (laughs) where um, a Republican staffer explains why she opposes the Equal Rights Amendment. And And she. uh, She (laughs) opposes the Equal Rights Amendment. And I think it interestingly uh, shows two sides of the coin because. For me, I cannot see why somebody wouldn't possibly support this, but she makes a point that she feels like it's redundant, that she feels like she's covered by the 14th Amendment. She's covered by the Equal Pay Act that was passed in 1963. And so she feels like any other edict that's handed down from the government is ultimately uh, encroaching on freedoms. Right. So I get that, but... I also get that there's a reason why people have been fighting for this for a really long
0: time. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go and be on the record saying, like, another level of protection ain't a bad thing. It really is not. I want receipts. Well, that about does it for us today, Risa. Thank you so much for joining us on Dress, telling us about all these badass suffragist ladies. Yes. Um, And maybe we gave everybody a little bit to think about today. I hope so. Um, And and sit down, read about this the Equal Rights Amendment. I think um, this you know educating ourselves about where we are in this moment is incredibly important.
2: Yes, and also educating ourselves about how far we've come, so that we don't get complacent and forget about. how hard these women fought.
1: Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this was a delight. Risa. thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, personally, I cannot wait to post some of the suffragists' postcards you all were discussing on our Instagram account. I
0: know. They're really, really fascinating. And we promise we will do so. And and some of them are probably going to make your heart sing. And likely others are going to make you very, very angry. And and honestly, maybe even feel that we haven't been working as hard as we should have been in in all of these intervening years. You know, currently we continue to teeter quite precariously on the edge of progress in the matter of women's rights. You know, why is it that we are internationally so behind in the matter of passing legislation that secures gender equality. And what does that say about who is holding the reins, both at the federal and state levels? So I implore our listeners, does this bother you? Do you know who your representatives are? Because the time is nigh, friends. It's time to talk about this with your friends, your family, and your representatives in government.
1: I know. It's pretty incredible when I think about my mom talking about the 60s and how all of this stuff that they fought for for us. And it always seemed like it was in the past, and now it's still very much in the present. And I mean, we really, really, really implore our listeners to please vote. Now it is more important than ever, not only in the federal voting in the federal elections, but also in your state and local primaries. Let's not let the women before us down. They fought for over 50 years so that we could have a voice so let us cherish this right let us use it and actually we will happily post a link to our website dresspodcast.com to which you can click on it and register to vote if you're not already yeah and that does it for us this week dress listeners may you consider
0: how you wear your politics next time you get dressed those images that you definitely want to see please follow us on instagram at dressed_podcast. this is also our twitter handle you can follow us on facebook at dress podcast. interested in some fashion history merch check out our store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed that's t-e-e public.com forward
1: slash dressed and please check out our upcoming Thursday Fashion History Mystery Minisode where we answer your questions. And if you'd like to submit a question, please, please, please email us at dressed@iheartmedia.com. at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Thursday.
0: Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.